Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Seidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is February 20th, 2022. And everything was pretty much, I would say, 96% of all the content was focused on the Russia-Ukraine escalation. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. There was a moment in the panel of State of the Union this week where we heard from Kristen Soltis Anderson, who formerly had the podcast The Pollsters. It was such a good podcast. Yeah, we really enjoyed that. But she reminded everybody that... Americans, uh, 1%, roughly 1% of Americans say that foreign affairs is their number one issue that they're concerned about when it comes to voting. 1%. I wonder what percent say other issues like, I don't know, climate change or gun violence are the number one issue that they vote for. And yet how frequently do we have those items take over the shows in just this way? Well, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about it and the way I was going to contextualize my segment is that this is a story that I normally wouldn't be following as closely in foreign affairs is something that is like not my strongest suit in terms of kind of my news consumption, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. And so in my segment, I'm really going to focus on good questions that are helpful right? for that very reason, because so many people, you know, unless you're in the field, it's really easy to kind of be to opt out and not even expose yourself at all. Yeah, that's very much the case. And I don't mean to make my criticism aimed at, you know, just progressive issues or issues progressives care about. I mean, people vote because they think there are too many taxes, right? Taxes are their top issue. How often is a whole episode devoted to the topic of taxes and taxation? I just think it would be great if these shows occasionally would take a look at what voters care about when structuring their shows. But nevertheless, we are talking about Ukraine. It is important. It is meaningful. It is newsy. And we're going to be discussing it today. So, Naomi, I took a look at two shows today. I looked at State of the Union, hosted by Dana Bash, and I looked at Face the Nation, hosted by Margaret Brennan, of course. How about you? I looked at Meet the Press. I looked at... Well, Meet the Press was hosted by Chuck Todd. Mm-hmm. I looked at This Week, which was live from Kiev with Martha Raditz, of course. Yeah, I was stunned when you told me that. I couldn't believe that they were there, considering how imminent an attack on Kiev seems to be. Yeah, I wasn't. I mean, I've seen a lot of prominent journalists be based or go to Ukraine recently. But, I mean, of course Martha Raditz is there. She loves being on the ground. And then the third show was Fox News Sunday, which was hosted by Bill Hemmer. Oh, interesting. So, Naomi, did you have a quality or questionable you wanted to share today? Yes. So my questionable is kind of the one main, one-ish 
main-ish topic that wasn't related to Ukraine that I saw discussed at least on two out of the three shows today. And Queen it, Elizabeth? No, she <laughs> has COVID, so... That was discussed on my shows briefly. Oh, really? Well, State of the Union talked about it. That's weird. I'm sure they didn't mention that Prince Andrew has settled with one of his victims or alleged victims, but okay, let's talk about Queen. But anyway... Bringing it back to my, that would be my questionable. If I got State of the Union, you better believe that would be my questionable. Okay, do you want to just, I just like, the way that she talks about Queen Elizabeth makes zero sense. She's just dropping this out of like an excuse to talk about Queen Elizabeth. It makes literally no sense, the sentence that she puts together. Hold on, just listen. Listen, you'll hear this. Welcome back to State of the Union. We have some breaking news this morning. Queen Elizabeth, who is 95 years old, has tested positive for COVID-19 and is experiencing mild cold-like symptoms. That's according to Buckingham Palace, uh, which also says that she expects to continue light duties at Windsor. Here in the U.S. this week, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced his state is shifting to an endemic approach to COVID-19 as other Democratic governors also remove mask mandates. I just thought that was so weird the way that it was like, here's news about COVID. The queen is testing positive, but some governors are actually lifting mask restrictions. It's like, um, I don't think those two things are connected. Yeah, that's lame. So, was it a quality or questionable you had today? <laughs> I have a questionable. Essentially, what I saw on two out of the three shows that I looked at today was the school board recall in San Francisco that happened this week, where three school board members in the San Francisco school district were recalled by, I think it was like 70% of the people who voted in the recall. And it's like, did, you know, our voters, our Democratic voters even over woke politics. Oh, gosh. So this is my beef. Okay. I think there's like a real legitimate story around parental rage, parental frustration, this ire towards schools and unreliable childcare. I mean, I... there's a story to be had there. Lots of stories. But any conversation, <laughs> and and I should say, media organizations, not just Sunday morning political shows, are exploring all this parental rage, especially if you kind of think of like the gubernatorial race as well in Virginia. Like parents are just mad at schools and they, you know, blah, 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 CRT. Critical race theory. Correct. But any conversation that looks at parental frustration without talking about the expiration of the child care tax credit is criminal. It is just ridiculous. <laughs> or you could even talk about the lack of vaccines for children under the age of five. Like there are so many facets that contribute to the parental frustration as to how to keep your child safe and how to keep your job and how to like pay your bills and how to feed your family that it just drives me crazy. So take a listen to, I'll play two Meet the Press clips back to back, and then I'll share a clip from Fox News Sunday. So in this first clip from Meet the Press, you're just gonna hear Chuck Todd kind of giving the intro. And then on the second clip, you're gonna hear from the panel with Yamish Elsendor from PBS NewsHour and 
Ashley Parker from the Washington Post. Welcome back. It is tempting to begin this next story with the phrase, even in San Francisco, as in even in San Francisco, voters are getting tired of woke progressive politics. But that appears to be what happened, sort of. Voters overwhelmingly ousted three school board members over efforts to rename schools honoring people like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and to replace a merit-based admissions policy to a prestigious high school with a simple lottery. But also at issue was simple competence and the wisdom of focusing on those goals instead of focusing on reopening schools during COVID. It's the kind of story that has conservatives smirking and Democrats nationally worrying over voters' impatience with progressive politics, even in San Francisco. Like at the end of the day, that's why, you know, this isn't about politics, but there does seem to be some wedge here between progressives and, and the pragmatists and the Democratic side. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is this central issue of parents having lived through the pandemic, having also seen what their parent, what their children are learning, um, really having a front row seat to the, to the challenges of all of that, um, rebelling against sort of what school boards are focused on. I do think a small cultural war is not the way that I would describe what's going on in our country. I would say that this is a huge cultural war. No, I would the also Democratic say— Democratic Party, though, it's just beginning I, in the Democratic I say, Party, I think. I think even in the Democratic Party, um, I was looking at some numbers, uh, Gallup poll— looking at sort of Martin Luther King's favorabilities. We're in, Mar- we're in Black History Month, looking at the fact that the majority of the country um, did not support his work, that he was an unfavorable figure. And I think anti-racism work in America has been unpopular historically. That, of course, is complicated if what you said, you're not plowing the snow right. during a snowstorm. So that is adding to this. But I think there is a real issue in this country of whether or not, um, when we look at historical figures, when we look at slavery and its consequences, whether people feel comfortable still talking about that. There was this, this inflection point after the murder of George Floyd. And I think there, there has been a big backlash a to that. Not plowing the snow point. I, I do think it is that. It is, it is its own version of a pocketbook issue. If yeah. you are a parent and schools are closed, you're deeply aware of that because you may see your middle schooler struggling with mental health issues. You may see your first grader sitting next to you when you're trying to work and you're having to help them with remote Zoom. So, so you feel it deeply and intimately. And this is one frustration also for the Biden White House, which is they feel like, and and they are, they're getting blamed for what's happening with the schools. Okay, taking it first to the Chuck Todd intro, like, it's just, he described what is happening, like, in such a vacuum, as if, quote unquote, woke politics is the sole driver of parents feeling like the school district is not doing their job. Right. Which is ridiculous. Yes. And it was painful to hear. Yeah, the the mayor, London Breed, who still has like one of the best mayor names right now elected. (laughs) But uh, Mayor Breed talks about in her interview how it was essentially the school district was not focusing on parental priorities about specifically getting schools open. Right. In the second clip with Yamish Elsendor and Ashley Parker, their points are valid, but they don't carry the weight they could when they miss the bigger picture of what parents have been dealing with in the last few years. Especially the kind of last point by Ashley Parker about, you know, the Biden administration feeling really frustrated by the, you know, parental, you know, taking the brunt of parental rage when they have disappointed parents in some capacity with expiration of the child care tax credits. And it just seems like, I don't know, like these are like, pins on a map and people are trying to extrapolate and make big deals 
and explanations without saying like, actually, these are all connected into like a giant cluster of disappointment from these last few years of Mm -hmm. the parental experience. Whether you have children who are not eligible for a vaccine all the way until you have a high schooler who's been really struggling emotionally and mentally and psychologically in this pandemic. And it's so it's so lost that within that parents were given a temporary financial, you know, support system with the child care tax credit. It was taken off and somehow we're supposed to have more or better tools to deal with all the other just kind of like general BS of trying to raise children in a pandemic. Yeah, there's so many, so many, so many more issues here that are bigger than this woke politics thing. Like it almost, I understand what they're trying to say here. And clearly these school board members from everything I know, which is very limited on the topic of what was going on in San Francisco here, but they did not have their priorities straight, right? They were not being responsive to the needs and the wants of the parents and they're gone. That's just what happens. You're gone. You're gone. It doesn't matter what you were doing. It doesn't matter whether you were doing any job at all or doing the wrong job. You weren't doing the job that people wanted you to do. And so that is at issue here. Now, on this broader point, though, I do think there is something, as much as we want to roll our eyes about that intro that Chuck Todd did, and yes, there is diversity of opinion, even in places that seem very blue or very red. This idea that, oh, things can't happen in San Francisco because it's San Francisco, or things can't happen in deep red Texas because it's Texas. It's like, no, there's people have different feelings and thoughts no matter where you are. But anyway, beyond all that, Naomi, you and I saw it even during the George Floyd situation where there were all these you know, localities and states and people who some would get very fired up over renaming certain monuments or schools or or or, or taking down monuments, right? Rather than trying to dig in at the heart of some of these issues that were more existential, more meaningful, you know, whether that was police reform or making sure that there were body cameras or reforming jails and incarceration systems and, you know, three strikes laws and all that stuff. Like there's so many real justice things that seemed like such low hanging fruit. And yet there was a lot of energy around more symbolic issues. And I do think that is a basic divide within some of the Democratic Party or progressive conversations happening right now between people who want to focus on on those more symbolic things and others who want to focus on more concrete reforms. Would you disagree with that? No, I, I, I don't. I think what maybe I would add on to that is that what you kind of have to do is see when someone is trying to make a symbolic gesture into the concrete, tangible, you know, policy change that is going to be, you know, have a, a, a bigger impact. I'm thinking of a quote that I heard from Carl Rove on Fox News Sunday today when he's talking about like why parents are going to be, you know, a driving force in the midterm elections. And the things that he's claiming might be a motivating factor for some parents, but I don't think is like 
reflective of the full parental experience right now. So I think we're likely to see this repeated across the country. And Democrats are, are going to have a real problem because this is not going to just be a national issue. There are going to be lots of people working at the state and local level running for legislature who are going to be talking about things like uh, no mask mandates and curriculum transparency and upholding uh, schools of excellence uh, and um, meritocracy. This, this issue is going to be repeated across mm-hmm. the country. Uh, Define a lot. <laughs> Upholding schools of excellence <laughs> is a bigger priority than the child care tax credit, which actually got millions of children out of poverty and now they're slipping back in. Like, really? <laughs> I Like, it, it's things like this where I'm just like, you want to talk about schools or parents or children and you're just like, so off just so freaking off just stop talking so anyway this was a much longer questionable that i was anticipating but i just wish if you're going to talk about a story make the effort to like have the full picture yeah well i definitely don't think rove has the full picture here but i would push back a little bit on your dismissiveness over some of the quote-unquote hot button issues he's naming there they might not be things that are on the tip of the tongue of every person watching the Sunday shows. However, don't underestimate the power of right-wing media and the talk show hosts, the radio hosts that people are listening to and streaming into their ears and into their homes nonstop, day after day, forever. You know, like these issues, these buzzwords become actionable in people's minds and become things that they they when they're going out to vote are thinking about even if they're not necessarily truly relevant to what might be happening in their own local school district i don't disagree with that part at all brendan what was your quality or questionable so i'm going to call this a quality moment one could look at it on the other side, but I'm not going to do that. So it's a quality moment because last week you in particular, Naomi, talked about pundits. And uh, we both got kind of frustrated talking about the panels and the pundits on the panels and what they do and some of them being even, uh, I don't know, at each other's throats. It was not a nice thing to hear necessarily, some of the clips that we had last week. Well, This week, this was the pundits versus the politicians, or at least I should say pundit versus politician, on the panel of State of the Union, where we found a pundit certified, Scott Jennings, who many, 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 many moons ago served as deputy director of political affairs in the Bush White House, and now is a pundit for CNN. And also on the panel, we heard from Representative Colin all read. He is a Democrat serving in Congress right now from the state of Texas. Now, this is something they've been doing a lot on their panels, putting active Congress people on. I do not like it at all, but they are doing it. And in this instance, we heard the pundit pushing one narrative and the person who's actually in Congress saying something very different about what was going on. Take a listen. The first voice you will hear is Representative Allred. Then if I could, I'll just say I was part of a bipartisan delegation to Ukraine. I actually think that Vladimir Putin has effectively united the Congress at the very least around uh, resisting him and his aggression. So it's not all not all hope is lost. We can have some bipartisan agreement around this. But 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 there is no consensus. We literally in January had a vote in the U.S. Senate 
about whether to hold Putin accountable to put sanctions on this pipeline. And the Democrats the stopped it from pipeline. happening. It, they stopped it, is, and they were encouraged to do it by the separate, Biden administration. It's a separate issue. It is not a separate it, issue. It is. It, is very, it is one of his most important issues. And Biden waived the sanctions, right now. Now, and then they stopped the sanctions. I, I think it's actually a shame that you're coming on here and putting us as a Democrat-Republican issue. This should be an American response. I agree. I wish the Democrats <laughs> were, were willing to stand you know, up to Putin listen, before I, he invades. I get it. I get it. That's your, that's your stick. But for me as a member of Congress— in these meetings, we've been speaking with one voice in a bipartisan way. And that last sound you heard was him closing the door on on that issue. <laughs> it did kind of sound like that, didn't it? I'm done with this. It's my favorite way to end a conversation. Yeah, that really <laughs> that really stood out to me, though. I know this is your shtick, but I've actually been there. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about because I am what I'm talking about. I would have loved to be in the green room afterwards <laughs> at the CNN State of the Union green room. Yeah, but this is just like, it reminds me actually of Fox News last week and how I called them out for correcting Anthony Blinken. Is it Anthony or Anthony? I can never get it right. Anthony. It is Anthony. This reminds me of what I called out last week on Fox News Sunday, where we saw pundits, panelists, and reporters from Fox News trying to correct the Secretary of State on a diplomatic term. I was like, well, what are you doing? You're totally wrong. Why are you sticking with your narrative when the person who does this for a living is proving to you that your narrative was not right? This is the same thing. This, this, what do they call it? Punditocracy is getting out of hand. Maybe we should, um, Rename Polylog, the end of the punditocracy, or down with the punditocracy. How about that? It's a long name for a podcast. It is quite a long name. Maybe it can be our subtitle. (laughs) We'll think about it. We'll have a new subtitle every week. Some people do that. They'll have a different podcast album art every week. That's a lot. Well, Brendan, I think that takes us to our segment. What are you focusing on today? So I know we're going to be talking a lot about Ukraine. I thought the top story for me was Face the Nation. This episode was practically perfect in every way. Wow. Yes. That is saying quite a lot. Yes. This reminds me of, do you remember our high school journalism teacher? He never gave hundreds. They said you could always improve. But once, once on one of my stories, I did get a hundred. Mm-hmm. I put it on the board for the rest of the semester. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what this felt like. It truly, truly did. And like halfway through, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a perfect episode. And then I thought, well, but they haven't really talked about the impact on like regular Americans. It's just very deep into like all the diplomacy and the forces. And then no, at the end, there was time for that actually in two different ways. So incredible, incredible work by the Face the Nation team. So I want to talk a little bit about how they pulled this off. What made this episode so good? See, this is like a supercharged quality, right? So what does that mean? Why is it practically perfect? Well, first of all, the bookings. You got to get the bookings right. You can still have a really good episode without good bookings. But if you get bad bookings, you're not going to have a good episode. So what were the bookings? Who was on Face the Nation this week? Well, top names were Secretary of State Antony Blinken, 
who's been making the rounds. He's been working very hard on the Sunday shows. He's still not going to beat Gottlieb on the number of uh, <laughs> showings, but he's he's given him a run for his money, certainly this week, because there was no Gottlieb on Face the Nation. So Blinken was on there. Then they also booked NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Probably not pronouncing these names correctly. I'm very sorry. I'm reading them. Then we heard from the Russian ambassador to the U.S., Anatoly Antonov. Perfect name for a Russian ambassador. I do have to say so. And then, so that was, a, you know, totally other side of the of the diplomatic coin. But there's another side to this three-sided diplomatic coin. We've all seen three-sided coins, I'm sure. Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Markarova. And she provided some important perspective. But, but that wasn't it, because bookings is only part of it. Those were the top names booked. Again, you've got representation for all like four major players in this Ukraine situation, the U.S., Russia, Ukraine, and NATO. So incredible work on that end, the top, top people there. But that wasn't it because the show itself was structured well. And that's the next item I want to talk about. So we talked a little bit about bookings. The next item is structure. And they started with a report on the ground from one of their correspondents, Charlie Daggett was on the ground talking about what what things looked like. And again, things haven't actually started yet. Russia has not started an invasion of Ukraine, despite headlines and very scary sounding news alerts from the New York Times saying shelling has begun. No, the invasion has not begun. That is Russia backing armed separatists from Ukraine, but that that is not shelling from Russia. Let's be clear, please, with our headlines. Thank you very much. Structure of the show, like I said, beginning with a report on the ground. Then we checked in with CBS News national security correspondent David Martin. So structure of the show is not just the order you put it in, but it's how you add segments with your own experts, right? We had the expert of Charlie Daggett on the ground. Then we had CBS News national security correspondent David Martin. And he's been on quite a few times, actually, throughout this Ukraine situation. And he provided insight. Then we heard from a lot of the top people on the, on the diplomatic front, as I just named. But to round it out at the end, we zeroed in on how this will affect Americans in their daily lives. We heard from Chris Krebs, who's a CBS News cybersecurity expert, formerly worked during the Obama years, and he talked about the cybersecurity threat, both from the expected cyber attack that Russia will launch against Ukraine and potential blowback and targeting directly from Russia at the U.S. if it comes to that. And then finally, we heard from Jill Schlesinger, also a CBS News analyst, focused on the business front and what this means for the economy. So holy cow, just incredible, incredible work structuring that show. And I want to point out too that like making this structure work meant recognizing that to make a good show, you don't have to just get a lot of perspectives. You have to get a lot of angles and there are differences there. That's an extremely important point. Mm -hmm. So perspectives are, okay, who do we have to hear from? Well, all the sides of the issue. We have to hear from 
Someone from the U.S., someone from Russia, someone from Ukraine, someone from NATO. Okay, sure. You've got all the perspectives. But what about the other angles? Angles are domains, right? What about, we talked, that's one domain, diplomacy. But there's another domain, cybersecurity. There's another domain, business. There's another domain, military, right? We need to hear from other domains. And that means you bring in these other angles and you don't have to necessarily book new people. You just have to book analysts and people who already work for you because that's your role as a news organization. So we talked about bookings. We talked about structure of the show. And then what really made this good was the fact that there were insights and newsy things said left and right across this show. And because of the bookings, everyone seemed to be in conversation with everyone else, right? Margaret Brennan could reference things that we learned early on in her interviews and then reference those interviews with future interviews. So it all felt like we were building and building and building our knowledge as an audience. And then I do have to give her credit as well for just excellent critical questions. She held a lot of people accountable here, not least of which was the Russian ambassador. That was an interesting conversation. But also tough questions for Anthony Blinken and trying to look over the horizon at where this will go, even potentially after an invasion. So excellent work on the question front. Now here's a few clips to back up all of this background. So let's start with some of those highlights, beginning with David Martin, who was the first person that Margaret Brennan actually interviewed. He is, again, the national security correspondent for CBS News. Here's Margaret Brennan asking him why Biden seemed so sure that Russia would invade. David, the president was very clear that he is convinced by U.S. intelligence that this invasion will happen, that President Putin decided to do it. How is he that certain? Because the intelligence says that Russian troops have actually received orders now to proceed with the invasion. So not only are they moving up closer and closer to the border into these attack positions, but the commanders on the ground are making specific plans for how they would maneuver in their sector of the battlefield. They're, they're doing everything that American commanders would do once they got the order to proceed. So this was very clarifying, getting a sense of where the U.S. is coming from with that data, with that announcement at the end of last week. And then David Martin actually kind of painted a picture of what this invasion will actually look like. And in this clip, when David Martin says he, he's talking about Russian President Vladimir Putin. How does this play out? Well, he is definitely giving himself the option for a full-scale invasion of the country, which would begin with an attack on the capital of Kiev. It would and begin there? It would begin there. With an aerial assault? An aerial, well, a cyber assault to begin with. Um, but it will look much like the shock and awe campaign that the U.S. unleashed on the city of Baghdad in 2003 when it invaded Iraq. Cyber weapons didn't exist back in 2003, so that is a new ingredient, and you would think cyber would come first to knock out communications, knock out power, but then they would be followed by missile strikes and airstrikes and special operations raids to seize key parts of the city, radio, TV stations, and then you could see the units rolling 
from the border north of Kyiv down on either side of the city to isolate uh, the city and, and prevent the government from escaping into a government in exile. This second question that we're hearing, what would it look like, is so interesting because, you know, as we mentioned, some a lot of people might not even know where the where Ukraine is, let alone the full extent of Russia's troops surrounding three out of their four borders, let alone what the attack would potentially look like or the invasion could potentially look like. And so also hearing it compared to an American attack is like quite telling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this really set the stage. And again, that's what she was doing here, setting the stage for all the interviews to come. And coming right after this was the interview with Secretary Blinken. And here's one of those kind of tough questions, but also an important question to ask Secretary Blinken to respond to some pretty harsh-sounding criticism that the U.S. has been hearing from Ukraine President Zelensky. Take a listen to Anthony Blinken's response. You have consistently described sanctions as a deterrent, but I, I know you heard President Zelensky really light into the Western allies uh, in that speech in Munich, and he accused you and the West of appeasement of Vladimir Putin over the past few years. He said, we don't need your sanctions after the bombardment or after we have no borders or after we have no economy or after parts of our country will be occupied. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Um, I can't speak, uh, Margaret, to the last few years. I can speak to the last few months and to the last year. And in that period of time, the United States, again, has provided to Ukraine more assistance, including lethal uh, military assistance, defensive assistance, uh, more in the past year than at any time in any previous year. We have rallied other countries to stand uh, in support of Ukraine as well, to provide their own assistance. We've rallied other countries to make clear uh, and to put together in great detail the massive consequences that will befall Russia if it engages in this aggression. The purpose of that is to do everything we can to deter, to prevent a war, to deter the aggression. And uh, we don't want to pull the trigger until we have to, uh, Mm -hmm. because uh, we lose the deterrent effect. At the same time, uh, we also don't want to detail in public exactly what we're going to do, because that will forewarn Russia. It will be able to prepare uh, more effectively to try to mitigate the sanctions. So all of this is is very well thought through. This is so important because... Oddly, so many people, in addition to the Ukrainian president, had been calling on the U.S. to either A, release a detailed listing of the sanctions that the U.S. would, that the U.S. and NATO would unleash on Russia if they invaded, or B, that they wanted the U.S. and NATO to do it before the invasion actually happened. So again, this is an important question for Blinken to respond to and explain the thinking behind these actions. And to be clear, these are questions that he has gotten before on the Sunday news shows, and he's actually giving more detail today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Brennan also asked about what might be, at least in some people's mind, an escape hatch from these tensions if the U.S. potentially would give Russia something that they want, which is recognizing that the territory that Russia annexed, essentially stole in 2014 from Ukraine, if the U.S. recognized that as part of Russia, maybe Russia would back off. Here is Margaret Brennan asking about that. Uh, When I spoke with the Russian ambassador, he referred to Crimea, that part of southern Ukraine that was annexed by Russia in 2014, 
as part of the Russian Federation. Will the U.S. Uh, in any way consider recognizing that, ceding that territory or any territories in the east of Ukraine as a diplomatic way out to avoid a larger war? No. No, hard stop. That is not up for negotiation. That's correct. I love the clarity of that answer when we deal with so many dissembling sort of answers on these shows to have a clear crisp no that's correct is um is very pleasing just from a almost an aesthetic standpoint frankly but certainly a rhetorical one no period is a great sentence yes (laughs) all around absolutely oprah says it's a complete sentence oh look at that i mean more people listen to oprah than anthony blinken so Mm mm-hmm Sounds like, why aren't they... Well, if that's the case, why aren't they booking Oprah on here? Oprah does not need to go on the Sunday news shows (laughs) to frame national dialogue. Uh, (laughs) You know what she can say to that? No. Exactly. All right, finally, one more clip I had to get in from the Blinken interview because of this question from Margaret Brennan, where she's really looking ahead, and yet it's it seems really important. So good for her for asking. This is her asking about what happens after an invasion. The president has said that the United States will continue to support Ukraine in the future after an invasion. If there is an occupation, does that mean the United States is committed to funding and arming an insurgency? The president said that uh, we will, in the event of an invasion, double down on our support for Ukraine. And that means in terms of Uh, Security assistance, uh, economic assistance, diplomatic assistance, uh, political assistance, humanitarian assistance, you name it. I really like this question because it might seem like the distant future, a world where Russia essentially is in charge of Ukraine and there are separatist groups, there is resistant force, leftover military from Ukraine that is fighting this Russian occupation and the U.S. might be arming them, helping them fight against Russia. That might seem like distant future, but it might just be like two months from now. So an important question to get a sense of where the U.S. and our leaders see this thing going, potentially. Yeah, distant future is so relative. So I had to include at least one clip from Margaret Brennan's interview with the Russian ambassador. The Russian ambassador was basically saying, there is nothing to see here. There is no planned invasion of Ukraine. And we are just, our our forces are on our own territory. They can do whatever we want them to do. And it is none of your business what they're doing. And we, we are all about diplomacy. And then Margaret Brennan's like, well, then why won't Putin meet with the head of Ukraine? And he's like, we have the total right to be where we are. (laughs) And she's like, "Uh, you did not answer that question. And like visually in these moments, he, he was reading off his notes. It was very crystal clear that he not only had his talking points, he would not, would not budge from those talking points. So Margaret Brennan kept moving, kept pressing, and asked another really important question, which is, why is Russia so concerned about Ukraine anyway? You have the largest nuclear forces in the world. You have hypersonic missiles. Why are you so threatened by a defensive alliance in a country like Ukraine? Uh, We have concern not about Ukraine. We have concern uh, regarding activities of NATO. 
It's a defensive we alliance. We see how NATO is not. No, come on. It's not a defensive alliance. Uh, you see that uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization is not peace-loving uh, NGO. It's political military uh, machinery or block. We would like to stop such expansion. We would like United States to withdraw their troops and their uh, weaponry from uh, those states because it's our life. It's our guarantees of security for our people. So this is actually really insightful, this question from Margaret Brennan, because it gets to the heart of what Russia is at least publicly saying this is all about. And this is not about Ukraine, as they say. We have concern not about Ukraine, is what he says, uh, quote unquote. He says he's concerned about activities of NATO. And as we mentioned last week, NATO actually is an alliance. It's truly an alliance with something like called Article 5, where if one country is attacked, an attack on one country is an attack on all countries. Ukraine is not a part of NATO. Russia does not want Ukraine to become a part of NATO. But here is Russia saying they feel threatened by NATO. They don't like NATO. In this crisis, what we've seen is a strengthening of NATO. In the words of Anthony Blinken today, he said he has never seen NATO more united as they've been on this very issue. And so if the goal is to see NATO disunity, then this event, this action by Putin does not seem to be working very well right now. And that ties to what we've heard so many times from different officials from the Biden administration that says if Russia is so scared of NATO, everything they're doing is just going to make NATO stronger. Right. Exactly. That he's accomplishing the opposite of what he wants. Unless what he wants is literally just to say Ukraine is part of Russia now. That too. But Naomi, I have gone on long enough. Tell me what you found noteworthy in the shows you covered. Yeah, so I just kind of wanted to do a highlight reel of the best questions that I saw today because this is a really complicated story and clarifying, illuminating questions should be applauded at all times, but especially in a story like this that is evolving, pressing, it's kind of global affairs. It, it It's just really important. Yeah, there's so many perspectives and so many angles. Yeah, so the first question I wanted to know was on this week, specifically when Martha Raddatz is talking to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, and she wants to understand or wants him to explain how this escalation could impact Americans more broadly. Americans could feel the impact of those sanctions too. Russia is the third largest oil producer in the world. Any disruptions to the global oil market could create shortages in Europe and increase gas prices in the U.S. Ukraine is a long way away. I think most Americans probably until the last couple of months didn't really know where it was or pay much attention to it. So really focus, if you will, on why this battle, a conventional war really, would, would be so different and so harmful and how much it would change the world. Mm -hmm. Why we care about this and why Americans should care about it. You've heard us talk all along about, you know, the importance of, uh, of maintaining a rules-based international order. No one country should be able to 
dictate to another country uh, what it what it can choose to do in terms of who it aligns itself with, or no no one country should be able to redefine another country's boundaries at will. So interesting kind of response from Secretary Austin about the international kind of rule of law in terms of sovereignty, but it's coupled with Martha Raddatz's voiceover and kind of package segment that gas prices might go up and you know there's going to be an economic blowback to americans more broadly yeah it's it's interesting i mean her question was specific to like why we should care about it like in day-to-day life and his was very much a this is the big picture right like big 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 picture yeah navy war college or military war college like theory behind why this is important yeah there was another interesting moment on this week that i thought was really valuable martha raddatz talked to two experts uh about ukraine and they were trying to understand kind of the rationale of president putin and their conjectures kind of came from different places but they were both kind of really valuable and just like exploratory, I guess I would say, um, and really kind of illuminated the fact that we don't know all of the decision-making factors of President Putin and why he's doing what he's doing. Take a listen to this moment when Martha Raddatz is talking to Christina Kibben. She's the acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. And we're also going to hear from Doug Lute. He is a former U.S. ambassador to NATO. And, and Doug, you were NATO ambassador in 2014 when Russia invaded and annexed Crimea. What what do you think Putin learned from that experience? Well, I think he learned that uh, surprise is an important factor. In 2014, he took us by surprise, and he seized Crimea, then illegally annexed it. He destabilized the Donbass while we were on our back foot, uh, which surprises me now because he's done exactly the opposite. He spent weeks, if not months, to amass this large potential invasion force, and he has sacrificed surprise. So it's uh, curious to me, and I'm not sure that he's decided uh, that an invasion is the way to go. As you know, the president has said he has decided right. if this happens. And, and first of all, I want to know whether you think it's it's practically a certainty of point. How does that conflict spread beyond here? Can it spread beyond here? Will we be in a new Cold War? Right. Well, first of all, I would say uh, that uh, I agree with President Biden that it is uh, likely to happen, that, the pres- that President Putin has made a decision. Uh, That doesn't mean it can't be stopped. It doesn't mean President Putin can't change his mind. But I do think that right now uh, he's moving towards uh, large-scale invasion. So then the question is, um, what does that mean? It means not only is Ukraine a threat, but really all of the global order and certainly Eastern Europe is a threat because if President Putin is bold enough and brazen enough and foolish enough to do this, uh, who knows what else he'll be willing to do. So a really interesting commentary and comparison here from what we're seeing happen to Ukraine now versus in 2014 and whether or not that's reflective of how far President Putin is willing to go. Yeah, I thought this particular the point at the end there about, you know, this kind of redefines the way we see Putin in the world after this 
ploy. And if he does move forward with the invasion, he really redefines the way everyone looks and thinks about him. I saw one of the other analysts mention that Putin has been thought of as an incrementalist who has actually done big things over time. And that this is definitely not incrementalism. This is this is a dramatic, very, very concerning, destabilizing thing to do in the world. Yeah, and and trying to understand the why now is actually really interesting when it is kind of a very different approach from what we've seen previously by President Putin. That came up on Meet the Press in two different moments. First in the interview with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and then later in the panel with William Taylor. He's the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. We'll play both of these clips back to back. Let me ask this question. In your assessment, why did Putin, why is he do escalating with Ukraine now? Why didn't he do this under the previous administration, who wasn't as supportive of NATO? Um, it, you, if you just look at it observationally, if he really wanted Ukraine and he didn't want the United States getting in the way, he perhaps had a uh, more of a, of a friendlier administration uh, in the previous one. Why do you think he didn't act then? I hope you get a chance to ask him. Um, but... Uh, look, here's what I can say. I, th- I, I think, and I really don't want to put myself uh, in, in his, his mind because that it's, it's very hard to do. But I think it's um, reasonable to, to, to think that as President Putin sees it, uh, Ukraine was slipping further and further away from his grasp uh, over time. Uh, increasingly Western-oriented, uh, desirous of a future with Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as that was continuing uh, year after year, by the way, <laughs> largely, again, as a result of his actions in alienating the Ukrainians by seizing Crimea and um, invading via separatists, uh, the Donbass, as that was happening, it, it uh, no doubt got to a point where he thought if he didn't do something to change the dynamic, yeah. uh, it was just going to happen. Bill, address the question that I said to the secretary uh, about what's the assessment of why Putin didn't do this while Trump was in office? You know, I think the, the question of why now is a very good one. Um, he's, he may think that he's running out of time. Maybe he thought he had more time when President Trump was in office. Um, but he's running out of time. The secretary made this point that is Ukraine's moving inevitably, inexorably to Europe, away from Russia because of all his actions on that thing. So I think he's running out of time in that way. Also, this is probably the peak strength of his military. His economy is not in good shape. um, And it's going to go down from here. So first, the value of the question. I think this is really important because Americans are so egotistical. Yes. Clearly, it's all about us. It's all about us. Why are they doing this to us? Why, you know... Why would you do this to me now? Don't you know what's going on in my life right now? I mean, yeah. And I think the whole point around President Trump would possibly would have let more things slide, I think is really interesting. But it ultimately seems like it, it's it's about Russia's state more than it Russia's state and Ukraine state right. more than it is about us. Right. And so it's just Biden's really crummy timing that has to deal with this. But I think it's important for people to kind of hear this because so many Americans their immediate reaction is like, why do we have to fight this? And it's like, well, this is what Russia's doing, <laughs> you know, and you kind of have to explain that. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Yeah, and there's lots of different ways to explain it, as we heard from Austin, uh, Secretary Austin, talking about why that's important. Uh, I just, the description that Blinken had of Putin and him, you know, the fact that Putin kind of like helped precipitate Ukraine's move to Europe after his invasion of Crimea and annexation of Crimea. And I just couldn't help but hear this in my head. I will fight the fight and win the war For your love, for your praise And I'll love you till my dying days When you're gone, I'll go mad So don't throw away this thing we heard Cause when push comes to shove I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Yeah, the Ukrainians don't feel so Russian. Yeah, yeah, that love does not feel very good. And then I just wanted to briefly share my last question that I found very impressive. It's actually kind of um, a series of questions that I heard on Fox News Sunday when Bill Hummer was talking to press secretary, the Pentagon press secretary, John Kirby. And it's kind of interesting. We haven't heard them. We haven't heard this question before on the Sunday shows, but it was really trying to understand the parameters of the diplomatic talks. Take a listen to the first question and two follow-ups. Can you characterize then how much activity there is behind the scenes to give Putin an off-ramp? There's been a lot. I mean, you, you just just in the intro to this piece this morning, Bill, you showed the full court press by this administration to try to find a diplomatic path forward. And we have made serious uh, proposals, uh, obviously, to make be met by the Russians in a reciprocal way, but we've made serious proposals about ways that we can change uh, things that we're doing in Europe uh, to try to address uh, the, the situation there and to try to address some of Mr. Putin's concerns. Obviously, some things are, are clearly off the table, but we've made serious proposals, and we want, we want the Russians to, to respond okay. in kind to that. Uh, what is off the table? Well, look, we've, we've said uh, that uh, the issue of Ukraine's membership in NATO, that's a that's an issue for Ukraine and for NATO. Uh, that is not something that Mr. Putin can simply in, institute a veto over or decide for himself. Uh, that kind of thing is, 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 again, between the alliance and, and Ukraine. OK, what, what's on the table then? What, we what are, are we what are we willing to give him? We have we have made serious proposals and talked about Changing, for instance, uh, the, the, the scope and scale of some of our exercises in Europe, being willing to talk about offensive missile capabilities uh, in Europe. Uh, we have we have uh, certainly put forward uh, other other proposals to, to try to convince Mr. Putin that we're that we're serious. Two really good, good questions. You know, what's off the table? What is on the table then? Yeah. And all, all we've ever heard is sanctions in which, you know, Russia cannot even imagine they'll be so severe. I think this question is really more for Americans and Biden skeptics to understand that this diplomatic path that the Biden administration refuses to let go of until the very last second is something that they're taking very seriously and that there's lots of strategies involved and that they're willing to disclose some of them or at least kind of share some of their rationale. And it seems like something the Biden administration should want to be talking about more. Yeah, I'm surprised we don't hear more of this. I mean, if they've 
if Kirby was authorized to talk about it, then we should hear more of it. Absolutely. So overall, just kind of some really great questions across the shows. And again, if, you know, foreign affairs or, you know, global news is not your thing or it just seems really heavy and really complicated, like take little bite-sized pieces and try to understand what's kind of happening, especially as Martha Raddatz says, there'll definitely be some blowback and impacts to Americans right here in our own daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. And check out the Sunday shows. I mean, I think most of the shows did a pretty good job and in particular, Face the Nation did an excellent job. And I do have a little something for the dialogue challenge today. And it's something that I, I finally was like, you know, I need to look up Crimea. I need to learn a bit, a bit about Crimea. I mean, I was not paying attention when Russia annexed it. And when I looked it up, my goodness, I have to admit my own ignorance of the geography of the area, because in my mind... Crimea was a territory just like any other. You know, it seems like someone could have just drawn it with with anything. It's just it's just a dotted line, you know, surrounding this this random spit of land. But no, Crimea is an island in the Black Sea. And if you look up photos of it, it's beautiful. It's just gorgeous. It looks like it's the Mediterranean. Just a great place. I mean, I had no idea that it, that it was such a beautiful looking place. I could see why you would want to take it, you know, for your own, but really not the best thing to do. Yes, that's... I'd advise against that if anyone else has their eye on it. Yeah, send a memo to all the colonizers as well of the last several hundred years. <laughs> just because it's beautiful doesn't mean you could just take it. Exactly. <laughs> that includes the gold <laughs> and other natural resources. Indeed. Just... Give it back. Give it back. Yeah. But my dialogue challenge is... Give it back. (laughs) Take your stolen jewels and art and give it back to the people you stole it from. Sure. (laughs) What is your your dialogue challenge for Real Run? It was about taking a moment to look at the geography of some of these things. You know, we hear about it a lot. We read about it a lot. We talk about it a lot. But I feel like we don't often take a moment to look at where these things are and what they look like beyond the grainy photos or the dark you know scary shots that are so often in the newspaper i mean people live here people travel here people you know make lives in these places so try to see them just for a split second through their eyes or through eyes that are different from the war correspondent because There are lives taking place in these regions, and it's worth thinking about them, even for a split second. Yeah, these places aren't abstract for the people who live and work there. Exactly. Well, if there's a place that you've discovered that you think we should learn a bit about, you're welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can find me on Twitter at SotoNaomi underscore. You can follow me on Twitter at BSteidel, and you can follow the show at PolyLogCast. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week. Bye. Oh, and have a great President's Day, which is tomorrow. That is true. Happy President's Day. Happy President's Day. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.